Hi, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a uh, fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and uh, very privileged to be speaking today with uh, um, someone I've known for, for quite a long time, really remarkable uh, person and scholar, Seth Ansiska, who is the Mohammed S. Farsi Polanski Lecturer in Jewish Muslim Relations at University College London. And in particularly important for our conversation is the author of a really, really interesting an important new book called Preventing Palestine, A Political History from Camp David to Oslo. Seth, it's really, really nice to have you here. It's wonderful to be here, Peter. Um, so let me just start by, uh, by asking about the book. The, the book covers um, a period of time in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that you point out doesn't get as much attention as, um, as other periods. The period from the Camp David Accords in the late 1970s until the Oslo process uh, in the early 1990s. And so I wanted to just ask you a little about why you chose this period and what you think its significance is for events today. Well, maybe the best indication of why I went backwards is to think about yesterday's anniversary of the Oslo Accords, right? We just marked 25 years since the signing uh, of Oslo, which brought um, some degree of mutual recognition between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization, and people tend to think about the peace process and the history of where and why uh, the questions relating to Israel and the Palestinians went wrong as a function or an outgrowth of Oslo itself. And you saw it again yesterday, people sort of looking into the anatomy of why it failed, trying to understand um, what were the possibilities that could have happened differently, but they tend to not think at all about the historical context of the 10 to 15 years prior to Oslo that actually had a formative impact on the emergence uh, of the Accords. And what I uh, look at in the book is the roots of this. And uh, as I see it, uh, this is a story that comes uh, out of the late 1970s because it's in the late 1970s that you begin to see for the first time globally and in particular here in the United States uh, a kind of way in which uh, governments and uh, people contend with Palestinians as a political problem, uh, as a political problem that needs to be addressed, not just as the question of Palestinian refugees uh, after 1948, but the mid to late 1970s, the Palestinian question is on the world stage for uh, the first time in a significant way. And we can think about uh, the recognition of the PLO by the United Nations in the 1970s, ways in which European states begin to engage with them, um, and it's under uh, the administration of Jimmy Carter in particular that you get the first U.S. president who's seriously thinking about how to deal with the question of the Palestinians in political terms, right? Not just as a function of their humanitarian concerns. And it's under Carter that we begin to have uh, a, a sort of uh, administration that's thinking about uh, uh, dealing with the Middle East and, and looking at the Palestinians at the center of the story. And so this is uh, why I went back to the 1970s uh, and where, in, in a way, it connects with the broader context of the book. Um, and the, the reason also that Camp David is significant is because the outcome of the Accords, which was a bilateral peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, was not, in fact, at all what was intended when Carter entered office. Carter came in uh, to office with an idea of a comprehensive peace, of thinking about settling the wider conflict in the region incorporating Syria, uh, incorporating Jordan, incorporating the Palestinians. And in effect, what this peace treaty, which we will be marking, or 40 years of Camp David on Monday, on the 17th of September, what it brings is a separate peace 
between Egypt and Israel. And so the question that really animated the book and animated my research is why? Why does this comprehensive idea that Carter first articulates lead to a much smaller outcome, albeit a very significant one, and what are the implications of that on the fate of the Palestinians? And because of the fact that Camp David leaves such a large imprint on questions related to Palestinian self-governance and self-rule, we can think about it as the foundational document and understanding of where Oslo comes from. And that there are direct links, which I can talk about, between the accords themselves and what then emerges in the, mid, in, in the early and mid-1990s. That, I think, is missing in the way people think and talk about the Palestinian issue. So talk a little bit about why Jimmy Carter's vision is not realized and Camp David does end up being a separate piece and not a piece that includes the Palestinians. Okay, well, if we go back for a moment to his campaign in 1976, you have to remember that Carter is a a figure who's not very well known in particular corners of the United States. He's certainly not very well known in the Northeast, right? He's a former governor of Georgia. He doesn't have extensive experience or relationships uh, to communities like the Jewish community um, and in a way also the Arab American community. And he hasn't had a lot of experience in the Middle East when he uh, campaigns for office. Um, And so he tries in many ways to make up for this, to engage on these questions of Israel and the wider region in the course of the campaign. There's a very important uh, event that he holds at the Jewish community, at the JEC, the Jewish Educational Community Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where he speaks in front of a large Orthodox Jewish congregation, trying to assuage some of the anxieties and worries of the American Jewish community towards his views. They weren't uh, trusting of him. There was a sentiment that uh, some of his advisors have talked about a kind of anxiety of who is this Southern Baptist coming in uh, and talking about these issues. And Carter really worked uh, to shift the thinking around that uh, during the campaign. He admits openly that he didn't have much experience with the Arab world. He didn't have much encounter uh, with Arab leaders. But um, he he quickly develops a certain kind of expertise on these questions. Part of it is because of the people he surrounds himself with. Um, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski is national security advisor. Cyrus Vance is secretary of state. Uh, they're very much uh, aware and engaged in thinking about the Middle East at the heart uh, of international politics. But they're also, in a way, repudiating the politics of Kissingerian realism, okay, of how and why America and the Middle East was operating in a very different sort of context uh, under Nixon and under Ford to precede him. And so Carter wants to, in a way, upend the dominant frame in which people think about the Middle East. He's not interested in Cold War detente. He's not interested in superpower rivalries alone. He's interested in introducing the ideas of human rights into American foreign policy. This has become an enormous field of study among historians is the rise of this human rights discourse in the 1970s. And uh, the Palestinian question is in many ways linked to this. He thinks and sees this question in relationship to his own experience growing up in the segregated South. He looks and thinks and talks about the Palestinians in relation to how he talks about African Americans. If you look and his memoir and his diaries. Um, And so he then uh, proceeds uh, to come into office with the idea of bringing a certain resolution to the Middle East issue with the Palestinian question at the core. Uh, And very early on in February of 1977, his advisors commission a classified report looking at borders, looking at Jerusalem, looking at refugees, which in many ways becomes 
the blueprint of what you can think about as a two-state solution uh, eventually, obviously not in those terms. And that's the basis upon which Carter is uh, different from what became what came before. Okay, so you're, you've explained why Carter comes to the view that something needs to be done about the Palestinian question. Um, why does he ultimately then move the story mm. forward? Why does he why does he fail? Well, there there's multiple reasons, and I want to uh, you know as a historian think about not ascribing causality for mm. only one mm-hmm. part of that answer. It's not just an American story, and as we'll see, it's not just an Israeli story. It's mm. not just a Palestinian story. It's also an Egyptian story, um, and. Uh, one of the reasons uh, that he fails is that he he enters office and Yitzhak Rabin is prime minister, but uh, in 1977, there's uh, an upheaval politically in Israel and Menachem Begin comes into power. And Begin, who's the first Likud uh, leader of Israel, has a very different attitude and approach to thinking about uh, uh, any sort of peace settlement. He's very resistant to the idea of giving up the West Bank, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights, which are the territories uh, that Israel acquires in the 1967 war. And uh, Begin does not feel comfortable with Carter's way of going about uh, these negotiations. And he's very insistent from the beginning that he is not going to withdraw Israeli forces from the West Bank and Gaza, and he's not going to allow for foreign sovereignty in these areas. And it becomes a bit of a battle uh, early on between Begin and Carter. And in some sense, Begin wins this battle. Okay, By the end of uh, 1977 and into 1978, Begin has ensured through his own negotiations that there will not be a serious discussion of the fate of the West Bank and Gaza, despite this American effort to make it so. Uh, but it's also the fact that Anwar al-Sadat, who is insistent on securing this peace deal with the uh, Israelis in a way to, to return the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt, that is, in a way, willing to forego his rhetorical claims in defense of the Palestinians. And Sadat is this uh, very uh, crucial figure in thinking about the reason why this fails, because he speaks openly and loudly in defense of Palestinian rights, but in the actual negotiations and in the outcome, he, in practice, helps disenfranchise them. So take the um, just a little more on the, on the Begin-Carter <clears throat> Struggle. So this is obviously an, uh, the United States is a superpower. Israel is not, right? So this is a question that people have thought about and talked about, you know, in more contemporary terms too. If the president of the United States wants this, right, it's Anwar Sadat isn't willing to go to the mat for it, but presumably wouldn't have been unhappy if there had been um, a, a Palestinian state or some Palestinian mm-hmm. solution to this. Why does Begin win and Carter lose? Well, part of it is the what's the leverage? I mean, think about the domestic context. Carter's operating in one term only. I mean, we know that now. He doesn't know it at the time. Uh, the political pressures on him are very grave, and this issue is uh, a huge flashpoint. Uh, He's the first U.S. president to talk about a Palestinian homeland. He uses that term uh, in a press conference in Clinton, Massachusetts. That raises an enormous amount of anger, both in the American Jewish community and among Cold War conservatives, right? He's trying to deal with this growth of uh, what will become the leading Reagan foreign policy establishment uh, who are uh, unhappy with the direction that he's taking U.S. foreign policy and feel that his attitude in particular towards the Soviet Union countenances uh, their, their growth and influence in the Middle East. So he's dealing on the one hand with the American Jewish community, and then he's dealing with Cold War hawks who end up as neoconservatives migrating 
to the Republican Party. Lots of the Democrats who become prominent in the Reagan administration are reacting to Carter. So that's one context. There's also, of course, we could talk about the domestic economic questions. We could talk about the oil crisis eventually. Um, but these things constrain the, the space in which Carter can operate. Um, and how much effort he puts into this issue is clearly a reflection of his commitment to it, but also the fact that at, at the end of the day, and this is something lots of uh, scholars on uh, U.S. Middle East policy have argued, there's a kind of limited window in which you can think and operate and talk about the Israel-Palestine issue without undermining other priorities. And there's lots of internal uh, pressures, debates, concerns that Carter is expending too much energy on these questions and uh, deprioritizing others. And what is the, 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 the extent to which his administration is willing to go to bat against the Israelis? Uh, to a point, yes, but at some point, uh, the willingness uh, to uh, sort of work just on the bilateral peace with Egypt triumphs. Um, and, and in a way, I think there's a great deal of regret or disappointment at the, the loss of that opportunity. I want to ask you a little bit about the evolution of Palestinian politics during this time. This is a period where, uh, you know, at, at Oslo, the uh, PLO recognizes Israel, PLO recognizes Israel even in, in the late 1980s. Um, and so I wonder if you can just talk, this obviously, to this day, there's a lot of controversy in certain elements about the degree to which Palestinian leadership actually accepts Israel's existence. And uh, this is a, a, a moment, of, a kind of an important moment of, of, a, of a shift in the Palestinian debate. And I wonder if you can just talk about how that occurs. Yeah, I mean, th the Palestine Liberation Organization is founded in 1964 as a, a bulwark against Palestinian nationalism. It's actually a, a product of Gamal Abdel Nasser's attempt to circumvent efforts at raising the Palestinian question. So he appoints Ahmed Shukeri, who's seen in a way as a uh, a kind of a hack on behalf of Nasser. Um, but uh, soon after, in particular in the wake of the 1967 war, you get a revival of Palestinian uh, national demands and you get the uh, rise of Yasser Arafat as uh, the head of the PLO. And it's crucial to understand the PLO as this umbrella that is encompassing multiple elements, right? We have obviously Fatah, which is a sort of secular nationalist uh, Palestinian party at the core but you also have uh, the, Palestine, uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP. You have the Democratic Front, the DFLP. You have other uh, organizations and then splinter groups that are in some ways trying to exist under Arafat's uh, umbrella. And they don't all have the same aims. There is, however, a clear shift, uh, particularly in the wake of the 1973 war, towards diplomatic engagement rather than armed struggle and military uh, resistance. Uh, and so you get this uh, attempt within the PLO to move towards diplomatic engagement. This has been uh, the work in particular uh, of Yazid Sayil, the great uh, scholar of Palestinian uh, uh, national history, whose book is, uh, is, is all about this move from armed struggle uh, towards uh, engagement for a state. And in the mid-1970s, you see the PLO beginning to embrace the idea of a negotiated settlement. Why? Because there's a recognition that the reality of regional politics and the reality of anti-colonial struggles from the 50s and 60s is not working in their interest by the 1970s. You know, it's important to think about the PLO as an anti-colonial movement that is coming into full force after the age of decolonization. And this is at the heart of why Palestinian statelessness is such a problem, because unlike struggles, let's say like the FLN in, in Algeria, 
or uh, uh, what happens in, in other parts of the anti-colonial struggles of the 50s and 60s, the Palestinian question emerges in full force by the 70s at a point in which uh, some of these struggles have now subsided. Uh, and so that's part of, of why the PLO is moving. It's also a, a certain kind of recognition that the armed struggle, uh, the attacks, the militant attacks, some of the terror attacks that take place in the early 1970s uh, and the mid-1970s are not effective. But there are always still splinter groups that are using armed force, and we see it uh, at many moments in the late 70s and into the early 1980s. And Arafat is trying to kind of navigate this diverse uh, arrangement of figures. Um, and he's being pressured also to accept UN Resolution 242. And there's secret negotiations that happen under President Carter, uh, mediated by Cyrus Vance um, through the Saudis, where the PLO is being pushed and asked to endorse 242. And they don't. And this is an interesting part of the story. I write about it in the book. One of the reasons they don't is because they don't trust the language of 242 as securing true sovereign statehood. They see the language as ambiguous. We know there's great debates about 242, the debates about whether it meant the return of all territories mm. or just some of the territories. Uh, and as a result, the internal politics of the PLO is not ready to accept it. So you have that happening, but it obviously doesn't happen in a vacuum. And by the 1980s, when we get the shift from Carter to Reagan, uh, the PLO is put into a, 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 a more constrained environment. Um, and uh, the recognition will come by the late 1980s. But what's you know curious to me, and I think many historians, is what does that delay mean for Palestinian politics? We have to think about Palestinian agency as well in uh, some of the failings uh, of, of their political efforts. Are you, are you suggesting that, that had the PLO come to this view of recognizing 242 and, and recognizing Israel's existence in the late 70s as opposed to in the late 80s, that might have, the results might have been different? Well, formally, the recognition comes in the late 80s, but there is already evidence through PNC resolutions in the late 70s that they have recognized. And there's a discourse about the idea of embracing a two-state solution, which is a radical leftist proposition in the mid-1970s. This is not mainstream Palestinian politics. Um, you have lots of evidence that they are uh, engaged in this diplomatic process, they have already tacitly and then explicitly begun to recognize the state of Israel and the idea of the borders that exist between potential Palestinian state and, and a state of Israel. And uh, those things are happening already in PNC resolutions in the late 1970s. It's not until the late 80s that you get the American engagement and then later the Israeli engagement with the PLO. So you're an historian, but I, obviously these things... Um, form the backdrop to where we are today. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the moment we're in today. Um, the Trump administration seems like it's going to set out a kind of a, some kind of peace plan. And we don't know what the parameters, what the details are, but I think we have some sense of what the perspective is. The perspective, as I understand it, is basically that Israel has never been more powerful. The Palestinians have never been weaker because of the view that that the that the arab countries are not really would like a better relationship with israel and don't really care about the palestinians um and therefore that frankly the palestinian is the palestinians should accept whatever the, the united states and israel give them even if it's looking like it'll be substantially less than what they were offered even in the past which 
Palestinian leadership and population didn't think was good enough. So, um, you know, maybe uh, some kind of a, a state, which I think probably put in quotation marks, yeah. with a part with permanent Israeli control of the Jordan Valley and no capital in East Jerusalem and no refugee return, and I don't even know what the borders would actually mm. look like. But um, it starts to me, frankly, to look like mm. a very very bad joke. Mm. But um, led by a group of people. Well, I will stop editorializing. But um, um, what do you think? What do you think it was gonna if if we move forward in this direction? Mm. Um, what do you think is likely to happen? Well, the guideline is what happened in the past. I mean, these ideas are not new. Again, another misnomer. They don't come out of, uh, uh, you know, Jared Kushner and 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 Greenblatt, etc. Who just sort of dream this up. These were on the table in the late seventies. Menachem Begin introduces the idea of limited autonomy for Palestinians. What does that mean? First of all, he doesn't say for Palestinians. He says for Arab residents of Judea and Samaria. So he does not see them as a people, as a collective demanding rights. He sees them in the liberal tradition of Zev Jabotinsky and interwar European thinkers as a national minority in the need of individual rights. What does that mean? Let's give them control over the sewers. Let's give them control over their roads. Let's give them control over their curriculum. But they will not have control over entry and exit and borders and territory. And they certainly will not have rights of return and refugee resettlement. This is the idea proffered by Begin. Um, I think we hear echoes of it when you listen to Naftali Bennett. I think you hear echoes of it when you listen to Benjamin Netanyahu, who talks about a state minus. He doesn't talk about a state. Um, what is Bennett saying? He's talking about autonomy on steroids. That is his phrase. Um, there's Yoav Kish, who talks about a return to the plans of Menachem Begin. So you get a lot of this um, deification of Begin's idea. If only they had accepted it back in the 70s, where would we have been? Now, the reason, of course, it's not accepted is because this would be, uh, certainly from the Palestinian perspective, essentially the, the logic of uh, eviscerating your national uh, self-determination. Um, we can talk maybe about how Oslo is partially doing that, and this is the big critique of Oslo, is that it is the embrace of some elements of autonomy without vestiges of real sovereignty or statehood. I think the, re the, the return of this idea has been bolstered by the Trump administration and by what this deal of the century proposes. Um, and, and this is a great danger at this particular moment, um, but it has this historical precedent. I think we can look back and understand uh, what the risks uh, are. I, I also think um, that uh, the, the Israeli attempt is not limited to the right, and we should be careful of thinking it's only about Bennett or Kish or Netanyahu. You see similar rhetoric in centrist and labor left discourse about separation, about not giving them a state, about economic peace and economic development. Uh, and these are all code words and ways of avoiding contending with the central question of what to do with political demands of a collective people. And I think uh, if you don't contend with that central question, you will get nowhere. Uh, you will get into situations that are far worse than we see now but to me, I think that's the great risk. Uh, and in a way, the book is trying to give us a picture of how we got here. Okay, how did, how did this emerge as the dominant way of thinking about the Palestinians? It doesn't just come from now. It doesn't come from the last five or ten years. It has a very deep history, uh, and we need to think about that history uh, if we're to contend with what uh, we see developing at this point.
What strikes me as interesting is that you know, you started by talking about Begin in the tradition of Jabotinsky, thinking about Palestinians not as a nation but simply as a group of individuals within some liberal tradition mm-hmm. who have some liberal rights. So obviously there have been also a whole group of people suggesting that um, that maybe the Palestinians can take that idea and run with it, right? Mm-hmm. Not in talking about themselves as deserving some minority rights, but in fact as them deserving equal rights um, in, a, in an environment where um, – the two-state solution is is no longer possible if it ever were. I wonder how um, v- how powerful and viable you think that that discourse is. I think it's a huge tension right now. I think this is where Palestinian politics are at a crossroads because the younger generation is looking to demand rights. They're looking to demand equality. They see the model of separate independent statehood is not working. And so the idea is let's embrace demands for rights and equality, and this will force – Uh, The question of what will it mean uh, politically if we had one man, one vote uh, from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. Uh, This is something, by the way, that Sari Nuseba, the great uh, Palestinian uh, political leader and intellectual, was talking about on Israeli television in the 1980s. He went on TV and he said, well, what if we all just demand uh, annexation? What will that mean? Um, The trouble is that there's a tension because the demand for individual rights is also linked with this question of collective identity. And I think there's many in particular from an older generation uh, of Palestinian political leaders who are uncomfortable with uh, just the demand for rights. They're also uncomfortable with the idea that they're forced to live among a population and with a population that has done such violence to their political aspirations. Uh, If you listen or you talk to PLO executive committee members, uh, others in the Palestinian political establishment, you often hear an aversion to the idea of one state or mixing together um, because there's a sense of wanting breathing space, of wanting to be out of the context of settlements and of these political pressures uh, and demands. Um, but I think we're seeing this intergenerational struggle unfolding. And you can look uh, in particular to Palestinian politicians in Israel, uh, people like Ayman Odeh or uh, Aida Tuma Suleiman, who are at the vanguard of trying to harness and deal with some of these questions. Hmm. Um I want to talk a little more personally about the uh, about you. Um, you don't come to this story as an outsider, as a kind of deracinated scholar. You write in a very moving preface about your own journey um, from an Orthodox Jewish upbringing to um, a year in yeshiva in uh, in the West Bank to the questions that you had while you were there about the Palestinians that you saw kind of in the distance from the armed uh, armored Eged bus. And, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was very affecting to me to read it because one of the things that all, so, so many of us in different ways mm. have made some kind of journey from the place and the thoughts, I'm talking about American Jews who've become critics of Israeli policy um, in some way. And, and I, in some ways, this, the bus metaphor is very powerful mm. to me because I sometimes feel not only that I'm now looking out at the bus from the bus or in the bus, at the Palestinians, but I feel like sometimes I look out at the bus at my my own Jewish community, and I think I can't sometimes understand why. I sometimes think I'm either I'm crazy or they're crazy because things that seem so self evident mm. to me now, mm. um, w- starting with basic Palestinian humanity and working from there, and saying that if one starts with basic Palestinian humanity, one has to start from a position of moral outrage, and one has to start from a position of believing that 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 um, you can't speak only you, that that you can't 
speak only in a security discourse about human beings. Mm. Um, and yet I, I'm often struck by the degree to which I feel like people, including smart, well-meaning people who I know very well, simply just don't uh, see it in a, an utterly different way, you know, um, uh, and not because they're necessarily bad people or be, or not even necessarily because they're not educated. And, and so I'm just wanted you to ask about mm. that, your own journey and, and partly what you think it was that allowed you know, presumably most of this, your fellow yeshiva students at Gushi Etzion did not make that transition. What was it about you and your upbringing mm. that, that led you on this, on this journey? And what are the lessons? Mm. I, look, I, I think one of the things that sticks with me is the question of why do some of us ask questions and others don't? This last point that you just make. I, I still don't have good answers to that. I think there are moral situations that demand a critical reaction, you see things, you're uncomfortable, you start asking what you're not supposed to ask. That's at the heart of what happened to me. You know, I'm, I was uh, raised in a modern Orthodox community here in, in New York and New Jersey, and I attended yeshivot and, and summer camps, etc., and had a very deep and, and abiding connection to Zionism and to Israel, and have spent and continue to spend time there for my own reasons and for research. Um, I think the first the first issue for me was this dissonance that you imagine or think of a place from a distance that is not the reality of what you experience on the ground. And that disenchantment um, is part of uh, uh, what I think was at the heart uh, of what I described, which is you, you know you're 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 developing this idea of a place that's not consonant with what actually exists. And the West Bank is the ideal space to understand that. Don't go to Tel Aviv to understand that. Okay, go go to the South Hebron Hills. Go go to uh, Hebron itself, uh, and and when you see that, there's a dissonance about what you think you understand or what you've t- been taught to understand and what's actually happening, and that forces certain questions. I think a lot of people don't ask those questions, and so then I'm uh, sort of confronted with this uh, broader theme, which is in a way nothing to do with Israel Palestine, and that's the tension between tribalism and humanism, and for me that's the great lesson of this experience. How do I understand the own journey or particular experiences that led me to this place that brought me to a, a context of, of spending time in, in yeshiva um, and the rich and, and, and complex and beautiful tradition in which I was raised and these moral or ethical questions of the contemporary moment? And why should it be the case that just because I come and remain uh, engaged with this tradition in my work and in my background – that I can't distinguish between these moral and ethical red lines. Um, And I think it's learning also to draw from that tradition and be able to use it and be comfortable thinking and engaging with that background to ask questions of what is being done in the name of Jews or in the name of Jewish tradition. Now, I look to the words of Yishayahu Leibovitz, the great uh, Jewish uh, philosopher in Israel, who in the direct aftermath of 1967 is talking about how the acquisition of the territories and the rule over the Palestinians will uh, sully the Jewish tradition and will um, sort of reify this idea of Jewish nationalism in a way that can be very destructive. I think what was seen at the time as a kind of, you know, gadfly or or uncomfortable uh, a dissenting voice has become a voice of prophecy. If you read what Leibovitz is saying in the aftermath of 1967 and you see what's happening now, it's proof in the pudding. Uh, for, for for what he talked about. Um, and, and so I look at fellow American Jews as people who, who are progressive on lots of issues except for Palestine, uh, and I have to ask, 
uh, questions, just because you and I come from the same tradition or uh, are, are bind, bounded by the same community doesn't mean we have the same ethical worldview or the same moral outlook. And I think that was a very hard lesson to learn. It's a very painful lesson to learn because it's not only obviously about Israel-Palestine. It's about questions of identification and, 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 and being in the world. Um, and you can think about uh, your relationship or uh, your, your friendships or, or, or other kinds of connections with people outside of the Jewish community who share your moral or ethical values um, and compare them to people inside who don't. And I constantly think about a, a comment that was made to me by a, a rabbi when I started asking him questions about what I saw in the West Bank. He said, you know, Seth, we need to put our, our own needs first before we deal with the needs of the other side. And I found that so jarring because, first of all, it's not a choice, right? If you see a moral or ethical red line, you contend or you speak out about it or you confront it. You don't so, sort of look at it as, oh, well, our suffering means something more. Our concerns are more than the other. Either you see things on a moral plane or you don't. Right. But, but then taking those steps does have powerful implications for one's life, right? I mean, uh, I remember when I wrote my book, I sent a draft to someone, a very dear friend of mine in Washington, someone who I think really highly of, uh, someone who went to the Orthodox synagogue we went to, and he wrote me back and he said, for the sake of our friendship, I will not tell you what I think of your book. Um, and what I think he was getting at was, you know, in a kind, in a certain way was that what I, that there are, th that, that maybe people intuit that if they take those moral, if, if they go on that moral journey, they will lose their community. They may even lose their family. They, they will, they will have to form another community, maybe based on a common moral values with people who share their moral values, but it may not be, they may, there may be a rupture with their inherited community, which for people is far more than just an intellectual journey, but a, a very, very threatening. I, may, maybe people intuit at some level that, that that's actually, those are the costs, especially if, you, I mean, not for all American Jews, but certainly for some American Jews. Sure, sure. There's great costs. Uh, I, I don't deny that at all. But what are the costs of perpetuating the conflict or perpetuating our ignorance about Palestinian self-determination, for example. I mean, but you go to Teaneck. Uh, how, what, what kind of costs are people suffering? I mean, to uh, play uh, devil's advocate, like, uh, they don't I, seem like they're uh, suffering uh, that much. I mean, I don't think that the people or many people in the particular community I grew up in suffer the consequences. I don't think they're thinking about them. The point here is to start thinking about them. Sadly, I think we're thinking about it way too late. Okay, I've watched... The transformation of this political conversation, you know, we've talked about this before. I've seen how you've been at the vanguard of changing this conversation. And I often ask of myself and others, what is the cost of the delayed recognition? What does it mean that now in the 2010s, we're sitting here and having this conversation, and I write about a period in time 30, 40 years ago, when if you open up the New York Review of Books and you see these letters from American Jewish leaders critiquing Begin and critiquing Shamir, there were people saying some of these things back then, okay? The dissent is not new. But it was ignored. It was overshadowed for a whole host of reasons. And I talk a bit about this in the book, the American political, the American Jewish political uh, 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 dilemmas. But um, I, I worry that we're too late, actually. And I, that's the part of, of, of this whole story that is very obviously painful to me and to many others. Uh, is that as a result of uh, this kind of blindness or ignorance, uh, we've been accessories or complicit in um, realities that have been extremely destructive on the ground, but also extremely destructive 
uh, to our own moral and ethical worldview. Too late in what sense? Too late for what? Well, too late in the sense that uh, I, certainly as a historian, I'm not predicting where things are going, but I think the possibilities that existed in the 70s and 80s, okay, for independent, sovereign, contiguous control, for recognizing Palestinians uh, and their possibility of a state alongside Israel, I think that ship has passed. Uh, to me, in a way, I'm, I'm not interested in a debate over one state, two states so much. I think it's a red herring. I think we need to think about questions of rights, questions of access, questions of the experience on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think uh, we continue uh, to sort of uh, go in a trajectory where uh, we've empowered, or not we, but the, 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 the Israeli population has empowered political leadership that is even less inclined um, to resolve or engage uh, these concerns. Uh, and I think that um, the, the situation is, is, is far worse for, for Palestinians on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I and and I, I look at you know the questions that are, are are coming into the American Jewish community about this, and I wonder what can actually be done. I mean, let's say we all talk more about these things, or we try and reckon with our institutional uh, voices. I've I've worked on it myself, and I've seen the limits of that. That there are certain lines that can't be crossed, or certain conversations that still can't be had. If if we move if. If the notion of trying to create some political so- solution in which you can have a state that privileges Jews um, uh, um, is receding, and maybe I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but it sounds like you know part of obviously from the from the Zionist perspective, a certain Zionist perspective, the, the one of the one of the reasons you wanted a Palestinian state so much. Is that, it, is that it was the argument was that it allows you actually perhaps to find a yeah. new way of justifying, legitimizing, uh, uh, maintaining uh, Israel as a, as, a, as a Jewish majority state with, with special privileges for Jews. Um, if we're moving away from that discourse, and, and my own sense here in the United States is that, you know, the Palestinian activists are gradually, I think, succeeding in putting Zionism at the center of the conversation rather than putting mm. – Palestinian statehood and settlements and stuff, which I think they've, they've always seen as the secondary question on the table, so, you know, at least among young people on the left. Um, I'm just, I wanted to ask you what you think, um, how you think about the, I mean, this is a bit beyond the scope of your book, but how you think about the potential costs or willingness that one should be willing to say uh, from a perspective of someone who cares about, about the Jewish people uh, um, and yet also uh, is a um, you know a humanist and, uh, and um, cares about human suffering and justice about about being willing to give up on that um, and and just how how you think about that. Well, first, I think we we need to, in a way, neutralize this term Zionism. I think it has very diverse, complex historical uh, uh, elements. It has changed over time. It doesn't mean to you what it might mean to me. Uh, it means one thing to a Haram. It means another thing to right. Herzl. It right. means a third thing to Naftali Bennett. So that's first of all. I think it's a catchword that doesn't necessarily have a certain utility. Um, I think a, a, a lot actually uh, about the argument, and Bernard Avishai has always argued this, of thinking the need to talk about a Hebrew republic right. or right. orienting away from uh, this idea of privileging Jewishness to pr- privileging Israeliness or Hebrewness. And that was an opportunity or could have been an opportunity where things could have looked different, right? That you can enable people 
who are engaged in Israeli society and life who may not necessarily be Jewish but are invested in this uh, a place and, and, and engage um, through Hebrew language or through cultural reality or, or political uh, uh, venues. I, I think that, that the possibility of uh, recovering that um, remains somewhere at the margins, um, but I think the discourse has so firmly oriented itself around this idea of choosing Jewishness over democratic values. You know, I was teaching uh, a course this summer on the politics of Israel and Palestine, and the, the day after the nation-state bill was passed, I had my students read the text. And it's astonishing when you read the text as a primary source because there was always a tension in the definition of what the state meant between its Jewishness and its democratic aspirations. And this new bill makes the choice very clear, and it chooses Jewishness over democracy. Uh, and as a result, you now are in a situation where if you are supporting that idea, you are an accessory to a certain kind of ethnic exclusivity uh, and a certain disenfranchisement of other people that I don't think can be countenanced. Um, I don't think, though, that this is inevitably the way we have to go. You know, one of the arguments in the book is I want to understand the creation of Palestinian statelessness, its perpetuation, but I also want to be careful uh, to say that it's inevitable or that there aren't possibilities that still could exist. You know, Mehron Ben-Venisti, uh, the, the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, argued that the settlements mean that you know, things are irreversible, this idea of irreversibility thesis. Others have disputed that and said, actually, you could remove them. You can do lots of things to change the course uh, of, of contemporary politics. You could say the same about the nation-state bill. You could say the same about the political leadership. There are other ways you can imagine or anticipate political outcomes um, but part of uh, what I think we need to do is confront where we're at and how we got here in a very clear-eyed way rather than obfuscating what I think has become the reality uh, on the ground. One of the things that's made, making this conversation in the American Jewish community even more difficult than it would be already is the perception, I think not, not just perception, based on some real evidence that there's a rise in anti-Semitism in various quarters for various reasons, and you're living in in teaching in 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 the UK, which it, where it seems like this, the Labour Party has been convulsed by these mm. claims of anti-Semitism, and and so it seems to me on the one hand, people on the Jewish left may are, are trying to may, may may try try to push towards a universalistic position, mm. which says, look, we we. We can't only be thinking from such a tribal perspective. We have to be thinking ab about um, uh, 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 fundamentally about the rights of, of, of others, of Palestinians. And yet that seems to me even harder at a time when the, in, because the, the Jewish natural response among many people to rising anti-Semitism will be to simply re, redouble the tribalism, you know, um, to say what you're going to we're going to give up the protections we have now in, in a world which seems more threatening than it did 10 or 20 years ago. So I'm just really interested in how that looks through the perspective of British politics. You mm. were saying before we started talking that the conversation is different in the UK, and I'm really interested in hearing about that. Well, sure. I mean, I, I think... Here, I speak as an outsider in a way to the UK, although increasingly as an insider. I think the context is different partially because the nature of the Jewish community is different. It's much smaller than what you have here in the United States, and it feels differently towards the state and towards society and integration. You know, if we think about American culture in many ways as having elements of Jewish culture, I think British society and British culture are different in some ways. And that was, by the way, at the heart of the tension and the reaction to Jeremy Corbyn's comment about this idea of Zionists not having a certain degree of humor or wit 
um, which really raised hackles uh, fairly uh, in people who heard it. Um, so there's particular class-based and, and socially-based distinctions that I think are at play in the UK context. But I think we need to sort of look much more widely than just the UK. Let's look at Europe, right? We're, we're dealing with a creeping, or not so creeping, it's, it's accelerating populist uh, politics. Uh, we're dealing with uh, the rise of, of, a, of a far right into the mainstream that has a very troubling views about a whole host of issues, whether it be refugees or, uh, or Jews, actually. Um, and what I find very troubling is that there are particular leaders of those communities, take, for example, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who are embraced um, by the Netanyahu government and by the Israelis. And that, to me, is a choice of choosing the far-right populace because of their endorsement of your right-wing right Zionist view, well, again, whatever that term means, because I don't know if Netanyahu represents Zionism at all, um, and you're privileging that over certain principles of defending uh, against anti-Semitism. I mean, think about how George Soros is treated um, by Orban and by uh, this political uh, uh, shift in, in Hungary. Uh, and, and for the government to side with him or to embrace him uh, is, is very troubling. Same with some of these pastors who are at that opening of the, the embassy in, in Jerusalem. I mean, if you read the text of what some of these pastors say about Jews, it makes your skin crawl. But here they are at the heart of... Uh, you know, the, the opening of this embassy. So it, it's, it's also about um, uh, redefining or rethinking who are uh, uh, friends of certain values and who are not. And um, I think uh, that's uh, part of this equation. Great. Uh, Seth, this was really a, a pleasure. I wish you all the best, and I hope this book gets all of the attention and sparks all the discussion that it deserves. Thank you so much, Peter. It was a pleasure to be here.